So Jesus must have performed hundreds, maybe even thousands of miracles. They were an important part of his life to point people to faith in him. And so he knew that when he did his first miracle, that would be the inauguration of his kingdom. Welcome to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. One of the most well-known miracles Jesus performed was also his first miracle, turning water into wine. So what is the backstory? And what can our generation learn from this event? Today, David continues our study of the Gospel of John in the first section of his message simply called, Water to Wine. But we continue to march through the Gospel of John. Today's story is John, the second chapter, verses one through 12. It's the very famous story of Jesus changing water into wine. Uh, It was his first of 36 miracles mentioned in the Gospel accounts. 36 miracles that we have that are recorded at the end of the Gospel of John in verse 20. uh, John tells us that there were many others that were never recorded. So Jesus must have performed hundreds, maybe even thousands of miracles. They were an important part of his life to point people to faith in him. So as we study today's text, let me make a couple of quick points and then I'm going to move into the verse by verse study. Uh, First of all, you you need to know that Jesus performed this miracle at a wedding feast. Jesus loved marriages. And I want to make a quick point that for those out there who are saying that marriage and the nuclear family is a recent Western construct, there's nothing farther from the truth. Marriage is God's idea. He is the one who thought it up. Uh, He is the one who called a man and a woman to get married in Genesis 2.24. God himself was the first officiant of the marriage in Genesis 2.24. Before the fall ever occurred, God married Adam and Eve, leaving and cleaving together and becoming one flesh. It was God's design. And in Revelation 19, you see at the end of the Bible, there's going to be a huge wedding feast of the Lamb of God, who is Jesus himself. We saw that last week as John pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Uh, Jesus is that great Lamb who sacrificed His life for the forgiveness of our sins, His shed blood so that our blood wouldn't have to be shed for all of our sins. So at the end of the age, there's going to be a huge wedding feast of the Lamb, a wedding feast of Jesus. So the Bible begins with a wedding. It ends with a wedding. So marriage is very important and didn't happen in a recent social construct within the last 100 or 200 years. It's God's design. It's in His Word. And interestingly and obviously, Jesus was a part of a wedding feast, and that day, marriage was very important then during that day. It's very important now. Now, Moments of Hope Church is very serious about trying to build strong, healthy marriages because we still believe that the nuclear family's strength causes the strength of the entire nation. We're very sensitive, though, to those of you who've been through divorces, for those of you who are single, single who may want to get married, maybe single choosing to be such, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, there are Christians who do that as well. So what we really want here are strong nuclear families, but we also want to form a larger family called Moments of Hope Church. Interestingly, someone came to me recently after a farm event and said, you know, um, churches I've been to feel like church. This church feels like family. And that's what we want. We want those of you who are married, older, and your kids have departed, older without kids, those of you with children, those of you who are single, those of you who are divorced with children, we want you to be a part of a larger Moments of Hope Church family where it doesn't matter what life situation you're in, you're loved by people of all different ages and stages. So 
This section of Scripture speaks, though, to the importance of marriage. It's God's idea. Again, Jesus' first miracle, one of 36 recorded in the Bible, happened at a wedding feast in a small little town called Cana of Galilee. So I want to make that clear as we move into today's text. But also, a little later on in the message, I want to address the whole issue of alcoholism uh, because this is the story of water being changed into wine. And Ruth Bell Graham, Billy Graham's mom, once said it this way. She said, you know, I know Jesus changed water into wine, but I wish he hadn't. (laughs) The truth is that a lot of alcohol problems are out there, and Dr. Graham and his family saw them. I've seen them. Many of you have seen them. They have proliferated families all over our nation and throughout the world. So I want to just address the biblical view of wine and alcohol just so that we can have a balanced understanding of what the Scripture truly teaches in that area. So having said that as an introduction, let's move into today's text. Again, John, the second chapter verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read through the text and stop and then explain what's going on and show you the miraculous power, grace, and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how it begins. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now stop there. What third day? It was the third day after Jesus had called several of his disciples to follow him, most notably, as you look back into chapter one, Nathaniel. So three days after Jesus had called Nathaniel, plus four other disciples, he now had five disciples following him, plus himself. Jesus then on the third day, after having called Nathaniel and the others to follow him, went to a wedding at Cana of Galilee. Now, Cana of Galilee is a small little mountainous town about eight miles north of Nazareth. Uh, It is still in existence today. It was extremely poor during this time period. Not very well populated, very poor. It was about 1,300 feet above sea level. In fact, if you went to the edge of Cana of Galilee, it drops right off down to the Sea of Galilee. A mountainous town, again, not very wealthy at all. And so Jesus and his five disciples go to Cana in Galilee to experience a wedding. And the mother of Jesus was there. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, was at the wedding. Now, why was she at the wedding? Uh, Could it have been a family member who was getting married and Mary felt implored to go to this wedding? Or or could it have just been a really, really good friend uh, during that time period and Mary felt a desire to go be a part of the wedding? Uh, It seems to suggest in the text that she had a part of the wedding planning herself. uh, So that would be even more so to suggest she probably was uh, being a part of a family wedding that she felt obliged to be there. Now, before we move on further, let, let me give you a piece of background information about weddings during Jesus' day that might help you understand what's going on here just a little bit more. Uh, During Jesus' day, uh, a guy, bridegroom, would see a gal whom he loved, and he would make an arrangement with the father of the bride to go ask her to marry him, and he would then present his most valuable possession that he owned. If he was a carpenter, it'd be something that he had made himself. If he was a jeweler, it'd be his most valuable piece of jewelry. He'd give that valuable possession to the father of the bride. He would write out a written covenant called the ketubah, where he'd make promises to the bride. And then the father and the bride and the bridegroom would all celebrate bread and wine 
broken to, and then drunk together as a sealing of those promises being made from the bridegroom to the bride. Now, after that was made, then the bridegroom would leave and he would go to his father's house and there his father would say to him, you've got to add on the addition and when it's complete, only I make that decision. When it's complete, then you can go back and get your bride and bring her home. Then there would be a seven-day wedding feast thereafter. Now, for some of you who know that uh, this is a wonderful insight into Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as his bride, it makes John 14 verses 1 and 2 and 3 come alive for us today where Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, folks, don't, don't let your hearts be troubled by COVID problems. Don't, don't let your hearts be troubled by all this going on around us. And it's a decision whether we let our hearts be troubled or not. Jesus said, don't allow your hearts to be troubled. Why? Believe in God. You know, put your trust in God and believe also in me, Jesus said, because God the Father and God the Son are equal in the Godhead. The first and second persons of the Godhead exist. They're alive. Believe in God the Father. Believe also in Jesus. And here's what's cool, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may also be. So when we come to faith in Jesus, it's like a bridegroom and a bride. The church is called the bride of Christ. And we enter into a relationship with Jesus. He gives us his most valuable possession, his death on the cross, allow the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God himself to live in our hearts. Isn't that wonderful? And then also Jesus gave us a ketubah, a written covenant. It's this Bible. This Bible has over 7,000 promises in it, folks. You've got to read it. You've got to study it. You've got to know it. If you can't claim one of these promises, how can you believe in faith that God said, believe in me, believe also in, in my son, and that Jesus, when he ascended into heaven after his death and resurrection, he said, I'm coming back again. One day I will come back for you. But then he says, like the bridegroom going to build on that addition to the father's house, only the father knows the day or the hour. That's only the father to tell Jesus, the son, when to come back. But when he comes back, he made this promise to us in John 14. He said, in my father's house are many mansions and, and I go there to prepare a place for you. If it weren't so, I would have told you. He wouldn't lie to us. He is going to prepare a place for us and he's going to come back to us and he's going to take us home to that mansion. Just like in Jesus' day when a bridegroom would make those promises to his bride, he would go then build on that addition to his father's house. The father would say then when the addition was completed, go get your bride and he would come get his bride and he would take her back home to this place he prepared for her. And then after that was a seven day wedding feast. And it was beautiful. Now, now, when the bridegroom would come back and he would sit down with his bride, there then they would have their intimate marriage vows expressed to one another. The wedding place would take place at that moment. And then after that, they would be whisked away to the new house where a seven-day wedding feast would begin. So what had happened here in John 2 is... The bridegroom had completed the addition onto the father's house. He'd gone and gotten his bride. They had made vows to one another. They'd come back to Cana of Galilee, to that place that he had built. And now the seven days of feasting and celebration had started. 
a wedding feast Jesus went to with his five disciples who were with him. So verse 2, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So if it was uh, a family member, naturally Mary would be there. Well, well she would want her 30 year old son to be there as well and celebrate it. Or even if it was just a good friend, it would be natural for Jesus to be invited. But here's the catch. It was Jesus and five new mouths to feed and five new mouths to drink the wine that were added to what was probably a very poor wedding party that didn't have a lot of means that Mary was an important part of making sure that every need was met. So verse 3, when, when the wine ran out, again, now why did the wine run out? Because a couple of days into the wedding feast, six people showed up who weren't expected to be there. Jesus and his five new disciples. They came and they started being a part of the celebration and they start drinking the wine as well. And after a few days, the wine ran out. And so the mother of Jesus said to him, so this is the implication that Mary had an important part of the wedding feast in her life because she went to Jesus when the wine ran out and she said, they have no wine. Isn't this just like moms? Even with a 30-year-old son, she's still telling him what's going on and what needs to happen. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, that term woman is the same term that Jesus used on the cross uh, when he looked down at John and told John to take care of his mom, and, and he called her woman. It's an affectionate term. But he is asking Mary the question, well, what does this problem have to do with me? I didn't cause it, really, and what do you want me to do about it? And you see, in that day, they didn't have DoorDash. <laughs> where you could call and get somebody to deliver the wine to you. They didn't have 1-800-4-WINE that you could call in order to get more wine to come to the door. Mary's in a dilemma. And here's what I think is really going on as well. If you kind of look behind the scenes, you know, you know Mary was only uh, eight miles away from the place where she'd been raised. And you know the story that during that time period, when the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said to her, you're with child, and she was a virgin. She had not had intimacy with Joseph or any other man. And you know that word spread because the same angel had to go to Joseph and say, you marry this woman. Don't divorce her because during that year-long time period of, uh, of uh, uh, of the time they were engaged to one another, uh, they, they had to get an actual divorce if something like this had happened. So the whispers and rumor-mongering about Mary continued, don't you think, through the years? Don't, don't you think there are always people who said, are, are you sure that Mary didn't sleep with somebody outside of wedlock? Are you sure this child is really um, not somebody else's? Because, you know, later on, uh, the Pharisees said to Jesus, we know who our father is. Who's your father? I mean, it was a jab. It was a jab at his purported 
illegitimacy. So, so Mary's coming to Jesus probably in some humility, knowing whisper campaigns were still going on in her day with a sense of shame and embarrassment because this was her responsibility to make sure that wine was available to everybody. And so she comes to Jesus and said, you know, help us out here. Jesus responds with an affectionate woman. What do you want me to do about this? Then he says something interesting. My hour has not come. Now, did, did Mary turn to Jesus because she knew of how competent he was? You know, really from the ages of 12 to 30, we know nothing about Jesus. It appears since Joseph's nowhere to be found in this story, he could have been a bit older than Mary, probably is dead by this point. And Jesus, as the firstborn son, probably took over the carpenter's business until the next son was old enough then for him to go begin his public ministry calling. Uh, so Jesus was here in this situation and he had never done a miracle beforehand because this was his first miracle, remember? And, and so some of the uh, early church pseudo gospel accounts have Jesus as a little child uh, train, uh, changing clay pigeons into actual pigeons and nothing could be further from the truth. There's no evidence of that in the scripture whatsoever. That's why we call those particular gospel accounts pseudepigraphas. They're false writings. They're not really canon. They're not in the New Testament for that very reason. But Mary either knew Jesus was very competent and could take care of the problem, or maybe she had this hint that he really is God in human flesh and he could, if he wanted to, do a miracle to make this happen. We don't really know totally what was going on, but it was probably one of or both of of those things. And Jesus says to her, my hour has not yet come. Now, now, what's he saying here? There was a huge Jewish expectation of the Messiah coming, but when the Messiah would come, there was the belief among the Jews that he would reestablish the Davidic kingdom, King David's kingdom, and it would be all powerful and all glorious. When Messiah would come, he would jettison the evil Romans from the land and they wouldn't have to deal with them anymore. It would be more of a militaristic coup when Messiah come. And Jesus knew that his particular coming as Messiah was not a military kingdom, but was a kingdom of the spirit in the heart. It would begin by changing hearts. That's why, for example, with the racism problem that exists so much today, now we can look at it being systemic, but the real problem of racism is a condition of the heart. What Jesus came to do is to change the human heart. And when he does so, we learn to love one another, not hate one another. And so he knew that when he did his first miracle, that would be the inauguration of his kingdom. is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in the studio in a conversation about the personal names for God used in the Bible. We'll be right back. This is the Ministry Minute, focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. I'm Mark McManus, and with me today is Bart Noonan with West Boulevard Ministry. Bart, Tell us about West Boulevard Ministry. Uh, thank you, Mark, for this opportunity to speak about West Boulevard Ministry and, and more importantly about Jesus Christ. West Boulevard Ministry serves the spiritual and physical needs of the families and the communities within the West Boulevard quarter to the glory of Jesus Christ. Whether we're doing neighborhood outreach cookouts, gatherings where we're bringing people outside of their apartments, their homes, into fellowship with one another, or we're doing Bible study bingo the first Wednesday of every month at Little Rock Apartments. And uh, we gather anywhere from 50 to 70 children that we share the gospel with and we play bingo 
after our Bible study portion of the night. And a couple weeks ago, there's a young man who we've been walking with now close to three years who came in, he, he forgot something, like a lot of young, young kids do, he forgot something in the um, space, and he came back in and he ended up praying out myself and all the other volunteers for the West Boulevard ministry team that were gathered there for that night and led us all in prayer and closed it out. And this young man, we've been taking to church every every Sunday for about the past year and a half. And, and that's what it's all about. It's about providing an opportunity for Jesus Christ to work inside someone's heart and, and then encourage them along the way. That sounds great. Now, Bart, if any of our listeners want to get in contact with you, how would they do that? The best way to do is uh, either email myself at bart at westboulevardministry.org or they can call me straight up in my cell phone and I always answer. I'm sort of like a doctor. The phone's always on and that's 980-298-9027. I would encourage folks too to also go to our website, which is westboulevardministry.org and there you can see some of our photo galleries, you can see some of the blogs and a lot of things we do throughout the West Boulevard Corridor to the glory of Jesus Christ. It is great having you with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. I'm Jen Houston, and with me today is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, on our last few broadcasts, we've been discussing the personal names for God in the Bible, and one of them is my cup. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, David in the Psalms constantly referred to God personally as my hope, strength, shield, fortress, etc. And one of the things he said about God is that God is my cup in Psalm 16, verse 5. Well, folks might be scratching their heads right now and going, how can God be my personal cup? What in the world does that mean? Well, let me ask you a question, Jen. Mm -hmm. If you want to enjoy a wonderful beverage, whether that's water or whatever, what's probably that which you need mostly in your hands. Uh, probably a cup. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you don't have a cup, a phrase that's often used with your hands is what? Mm, to cup your hands. Cup your hands. Yeah. Form it into kind of a cup so that you can huh. drink the water or whatever beverage that might be. Now, the problem with cupping your hands is the beverage, the water will eventually seep out through your fingers. It can't hold it. So what you really would want is an actual cup to hold the beverage so that you can drink all of it in your own timing, in your own way, mm. to your full enjoyment. So with that having been said, I think this is what King David was getting at. When he called God my cup, he knew that the Lord daily offers us blessings beyond anything we could ever hope for or imagine, that we drink from his knowledge, we drink from his character, we drink from his purposes in order to fully have everything that God wants us. He needs to be my cup. He needs to hold everything in his perfect hands in order for us to drink totally and completely from him. And when we do so, that means that we can be totally and completely satiated with every thirst of our hearts being met in him. So think about it. When you're thirsty, you not only need water, you need a cup, something from which you can drink until your thirst is satisfied, something so that the water cannot spill on the ground. The cup is needed as a conduit for your thirst to be satiated. So God loves it when we hunger and thirst for his righteousness. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6. That's why we know God is needed as our personal cup. When we drink from him, our personal righteousness can be satisfied. So let me ask all our listeners today, do you know God as your cup, your personal cup? Well, if not, pray to him right now, daddy, you're mine. 
Thank you for your love and provision. Remind me to drink daily from your cup of grace. I want to be saturated with your mercy, kindness, and love. Fill me to the brim with all of your blessings and provision. And then you'll be able to say, like David did in Psalm 42.1, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you, O God, and you'll be able to drink sufficiently and completely from God's cup because you know him personally to meet the every deepest longing of your heart. Wow, this has been so good. Thank you so much for those visuals. That's really helpful to understand this. Well, I hope everyone will drink from God's beautiful grace today and know him as my personal God, my cup. And when you do so, he'll meet the deepest longings of your heart. And everyone, if you'd like to receive a daily moment of hope from me, go to momentsofhopechurch.org, subscribe to my daily e-blast, and I'll be more than happy to send them to you. They're free of charge. They're from my heart to yours, I only have one desire, and that is to start your every morning with a moment of hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message on the Gospel of John is from our online worship service, and you can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. And also check out our Hopecasts. They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston asking you to pray for the leadership in our community 